Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Well, we have a great and interesting show today. It is the money secrets of the wealthy. And my guest today is going to be talking about some of the things that the wealthy people know and ways that they think about money and the strategies they use to help create wealth and preserve it and grow it. And this is a really big topic. And literally, it is something that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. But it's important to know that at the end of the day, there really aren't any true secrets. It's really just an understanding of money, how it works, how to put it to use, how to preserve it, how to grow it, how to protect it. And these are topics in and of themselves. But at the end of the day, it's important to know that this stuff can be learned and implemented. You can learn how money works, how investing works, how to become a better investor. This is nothing new and nothing that I've created. I'm being a shepherd of information and passing it along and bringing great guests on the show, like today's guest, who you know is willing to share and educate and teach the things that they have learned in their journey to becoming financially independent, and even in many cases, incredibly wealthy and rich. So that is what today's show is about, the so-called money secrets of the wealthy, and it'll give you a lot of insight and perspective. And I think you're going to really enjoy the show, so be sure to listen straight through to the end. In the meantime, if you haven't subscribed to the show, remember to do so. Just click the quick button, and let's get on with the show. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome Andrew Cordell to the show. Andrew is an experienced real estate investor and a trainer who has fixed and flipped over 500 properties. He has done over 200 wholesale deals, over 100 lease option and subject to deals, wow, and invested in single-family and multifamily rentals. So he is a two-time Amazon best-selling author. He's an international speaker. His businesses have generated over $100 million in sales in a three-year period, which is absolutely incredible. He's a respected thought leader in the business area of financial literacy, and he is the host of The Money Is Show. And last but not least, he does like to educate the 99% of people out there about money secrets, about what the 1% wealthy do. So with all that, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I'm in. Happy to be here. Excited to be here, actually. Well, I'm glad to have you on. You're actually a good friend of a good friend of mine. And I know of you and I've met you long ago and you know we've kind of crossed paths multiple times. So finally, we are getting together here to talk about something that you're passionate about, that I'm passionate about, and that I know that our listeners love to talk about, and that is money, wealth, income, all that kind of stuff. So right. before we start going down that road, let's find out who Andrew is. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you know, so I think it just in general, look, um, I think when I do these podcasts, I talk a lot about, I feel like I'm just like everybody else that I always talk to that are almost probably listening now in the sense of I, I grew up in a very low to middle income family that had nothing to do with money. We didn't understand money, almost had a negative connotation about money. And uh, from, you know, just from our kind of background of our family and so forth. And it was kind of a bad thing and a negative concept to a certain degree. And when all my family kind of history there as teachers, and so I followed the, the suit and went off to college to become a teacher, third generation teacher. And along those lines in college is somewhere where I realized I don't think teaching is for me in the traditional sense of going to a school. And that's kind of where I, that birth of entrepreneurship hit was in college. And once I 
kind of crack that Pandora's box open of entrepreneurship has never been closed since. And I don't think I could ever close it again of the entrepreneur side. And so from college, I just started businesses and then got into real estate, as you know, uh, right after college. And now it's been close to 18 years I've been in business and real estate together. So you weren't born in a wealthy family or with a silver spoon in your mouth. You had to obviously teach yourself financial literacy. At what point did you make that realization and what did you do to educate yourself? Yeah, you know, I think that probably like a lot of people that I talk to so often is when I started, I knew nothing about money. I just knew that I was frustrated with what I was kind of doing, let's say just like maybe financially or or even in my life. And I was looking for a way out, if you will. Mm -hmm. And real estate for me, was kind of the bridge that allowed me to try to get to the other side. And a lot of that has to do with, because of all the things that you know with leverage and so forth that's built into real estate, but we don't have a lot of money. There is an avenue you can kind of at least play into that world of real estate with leverage. But I still, even when I was doing deals, and this is where a lot of mistakes that I made at was, even as I was doing deals and I was flipping houses and I built a company and this was 2003, four, five, six, and we were doing buy, fix and sell during that time. We were doing a lot. We probably did, don't hold me to this number, but probably during that era right there, probably 150 or so, 200 buy, fix, and sells in that heyday pre-bubble. And then when the 07, 08 uh, crash hit, that's when I really found out, wait a second, I actually did not know anything about money. I became good at doing a flip. I was good at a craft, but being good at that craft and being good at money, I realized at a very costly lesson was not the same thing. And so when I crashed, I ended up losing everything in 08. I lost all my houses, my company down, all my staff and employees go like a lot of people did. And that's when it really for me when I realized, man, it wasn't just about knowing how to flip a house or create some money. It was about understanding what I call the game of money. And I knew nothing about that, which is when I went into kind of saying, okay, I don't want to necessarily maybe learn everything about real estate or business or, you know, whatever the concept is. I want to know about money. Because that's what I was really going after. Like, why was I flipping these houses? Why was I willing to risk my time, my money, my career? Why was I willing to do all that? It wasn't because I loved a house or a flip. It was because I really was trying to, to get the end goal, which was money. In 08 is when I kind of learned that experience and then shifted my focus on learning more about money. And that's when really my whole life changed from the, financially. is when my life changed right in that 08 crash. At ground zero bottom is when my life actually changed. I think that story well illustrates the idea and need for financial literacy. Understanding money and how it works is so critically important because when you start flipping houses because you think it's the right thing to do, that's the tactical side of the equation. You're looking at the tree and you're not stepping back and looking at the entire forest. You're not understanding how to create streams of income, why you should create streams of income, how to make it, how to grow it, how to protect it, you know, which gets into the whole concept of asset protection and tax strategies, tax advice, and all that stuff is financial literacy. And I think a lot of investors, including myself, make the mistake of jumping in head first, doing the deals, and then realizing, oh, wait, there's a lot more to this that I need to consider. And then you have to step back and start reinventing some of what you've done and what you've learned. So this is why financial literacy is so important. Um, I mean, obviously, you agree with me that financial literacy is important, right? I have like very passionate opinions on this because I think the financial literacy is like extreme, like ranking it in the very, very top things that is out there in what we need in our society today. Because money, if you think about it, Marco, it intertwines in everything. We could talk about the divorce rate in America. 
and how high it is. And if you go back and do the studies and they say, okay, why, what was the number one cause for divorce? Well, the answer is actually finances, right? Like you go through all these different categories, forget even like money and retirement, like money intertwines everything that we do, our kids do, where they go to school, what we eat, where we live, where we go to vacation. So to me, financial literacy is one of the most important things that we could study. And unfortunately, is not actually out there being taught really anywhere. This was so frustrating is, and you know this, Marco, you can't like go to some school and say, teach me about money. Because most of the time, the actual teachers, and I'm talking about my own family here, right? Like my mom and dad, they were teachers, but my mom and dad couldn't teach in a school system about money because to teach money, you'd have to understand money. Right. And the majority of people don't understand how money works, how it operates. You know, I talk a lot about money movement and how important, I call it the number one rule or the law of money is money movement. And without money movement, it's almost impossible, I actually argue that it's impossible to create wealth without money movement, which goes against <laughs> everything we're always taught growing up, which is the opposite of that, which is basically save all your money, hold on to it as much as you can, in reality, give it to someone else and let them go make money and you just hold on to it, right? There's a huge break in society and understanding money and being able to teach it the principle of money movement or whatever it may be. Well, there's a huge break. You're right. I mean, just look at the stats. Like 43% of American households, they actually spend more than they earn. I mean, that is proof right there that people don't understand how to properly preserve, manage, and invest money. 76%, which is three quarters of the US population, literally live paycheck to paycheck. That's a scary thought because if they have a $400 repair bill next month, they are screwed. Oh, it's incredible. Like that, I use this that all the time in that how many people live paycheck by paycheck. I always talk about, there's not a staff for this one, but it's just me thinking through it, right? If 73% of the population live paycheck by paycheck, now that's a stat that we know that's out there, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but I don't think that that necessarily means that the other, whatever it is, 22% of the population is not living paycheck by paycheck. You see, because I think there's still that the part of society that is living below paycheck by paycheck, their paycheck isn't even covering their expenses. So this is where I get into like really what it comes down to is like the 99% of the people in America and the one percenters, right? We hear this terminology all the time, the 99 and the one. And to me, that stat of saying 73% live paycheck by paycheck is true. But I think there's another 21% in there that are not living paycheck by paycheck. They're under it. And then there's actually the 1% that actually has money and understands the game of money that's out there. And that's why you, there's this massive generational divide between the 99 percenters and the one percenters when it comes to money. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we can go on and on about the stats. I think we've made the point uh, <laughs> loud and clear. So, you know, I always wonder how much of that comes from a scarcity or shortage mindset. I personally believe that becoming wealthy and financially independent starts upstairs in your head. And my number one rule of my 10 rules is all about educating yourself. You have to invest in yourself because that pays, as they say, the highest dividends, right? Oh, for sure. There's no greater investment than in yourself. There's not a better... You couldn't invest in gold, silver, stock, real estate, and have a better return than you investing in yourself first because you are the brand, you are the product, you are the investment. And so you as an individual, right, when it comes to money, you as an individual can only grow as much as you understand. So again, it's why there's this large group of people that are in that paycheck by paycheck side because mentally when it comes to money, they're at a level where they kind of capped off at and they can't get above it because they're not investing in themselves and learning more about money. Therefore, they're capped there. The more that you know about money, the more that you can have. The less that you know about money, the less that you will have. Therefore, the greatest investment 
is always in yourself first. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, some people think that there's a shortage of money, which we all know is not the case. The Fed just finished printing $4.2 trillion, you know, of new currency and pumped yeah. it into the system. So there's no shortage of money. The problem is not that it's in money. The problem lies within you, within how you think. And I mean, the book, Think and Grow Rich, nails it. You know, that's exactly why it was titled that way. Because there's the side, you know, I call, lots of times that I teach on the, the 99% and the one percenters, I call those contributors and creators, right? When it comes to money, you would basically have one group, the 99%, there's no, what I refer to as the contributors of money or wealth. And you have the 1%, which I refer to as the creators of wealth, okay? And at the end of the day, if you really break these down, what you'll start to realize is everything that the contributors do with money, every philosophy they have with money, everywhere they put money, everything they do with money is the exact opposite of the one percenters. And the myth that is inside of money that a lot of people misunderstand is that a lot of times when you talk to someone, they'll say, yes, there's two different games or concepts of uh, money when it comes to the middle class, maybe, and the wealthy, but the two games are similar. And so, okay, maybe they don't use 401k, but they have a Roth or whatever. And they try to justify the process and say that the games are similar. It's not true at all. The first thing that the contributors or the 99% would have to understand is everything they do with money, just understand the 1%, I could sit here and break it down piece by piece for you. The 1% does the opposite of what they do. Then when you take a step back of the picture and realize the 99% does not have money and the 1% does have money, okay, you have to ask yourself the question of, if this side is the side that has money and they do certain things with money and I do the exact opposite things of money, if I want money, I would have to reprogram my internal brain of money and how it works to this side, the creator side versus how we do it over here. People always talk about it as like, well, if I just work long enough and work hard enough that eventually I'll be wealthy. And that's not true at all because you could go back for generations, right? Like in my own family, my family were extremely hard workers. We worked from my dad, like many of fathers that are listening was from the generation of they went to work every single day. They didn't miss a day and they worked extremely hard, but it doesn't mean that at the end of it, they were wealthy, right? So that was 30, 40 years of working. And my grandfather was the same way. So time is not the issue that's lying there with money. Because a lot of times the contributors will say, well, I just have to have this 40-year plan in place. And eventually one day, if I do all this work and do all this stuff, eventually I'll be, I'll be wealthy. And to me, it's like, no, no, man. If you understand how money works, it's not timing as an issue. Not that it doesn't take time to create wealth. And I don't believe in any get-rich-quick concepts. But it's not a time thing. It's understanding money in the sense of a great concept. Maybe you want to talk about it is how money movement actually works and how one side does not move money and one side always does move money. What do I refer to as the law of money there? Okay, so I want to talk about money movement because you mentioned it often. But before we go yeah. there, just to take what we're both talking about one step further and become a little bit more granular with it, yeah. I always like to ask people, even myself, how do we fix this problem? The approach I'm taking with it is let me put out some quality content. Let me interview guys like you and Grant Cardone and Robert Kiyosaki and you know share their message with the world, the podcast, YouTube channel, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to ask you the same question. In your opinion, how do we address and fix this problem? I have spent so many countless hours of my life trying to answer that question internally because I have a legitimate want and desire and even like purpose in my life to solve that problem. Like it drives me crazy (laughs) 
that it's not fair in the sense of it's not like that we all went to school. We were all taught how money worked. And some of us chose to do it. And then some of us chose not to do it. Right. That's not what took place. What took place was we weren't taught anything about it in school systems. So what we learned, where we learned about it from was basically our parents. And so if our parents had money, well, then we probably learned those principles and philosophies and could develop money. And if our parents didn't have money, like my parents did, then we were taught basically how not to do it. So anyways, this whole concept drives me crazy. Marco, coming from the teaching standpoint, I don't know if we could ever get it in depth into an actual school system. Because again, I believe to truly be able to teach money, you have to understand money. And to understand money, you'd actually have to have money. Right. Because when you have it, the choices become very real or and not hypothetical anymore. It's one thing to talk about money from a hypothetical standpoint, from a classroom perspective. It's another thing when that teacher can get up on stage and talk to you from, this is how it actually works because I've literally done it and felt it and understand it. Because of that, and we get into the concept of do we pay our teachers enough money? Uh, that's a different conversation. I just don't know if we could ever truly get education to a school system. Right. There could be progress made in some underlining themes. I agree. I think that could happen. But truly teaching it, I don't think could happen. I think it's what you're doing, what I'm trying to do, what others are trying to do, where we're basically saying, hey, let's pull back the curtain on this thing. Let's actually have an authentic conversation. The whole brand that I have, money is, is really about trying to have an authentic conversation about money. Let's just put it on the table and talk about it. It's not a taboo topic. And so I think it's exactly what you're talking about. We have to have these podcasts. We have to have these YouTube channels. We have to have these blogs of getting true information out with really wanting nothing in return. Because as you know, as soon as you make it about a sale or a top, some sort of buy this from me, which I'm not against because I believe in capitalism, but once in the game of money, once you kind of do that in your voice, there's a piece of you that you'll lose credibility of just producing content information when then you try to turn it into a course of, let me say this course for $3,000 and then you know I can coach you through it. And again, I'm not bashing that. I believe in the concept. But for me at Money Is, it's like, hey, I don't want people to come to me with a bias like, oh, he's really trying to sell me this thing. Right. I'm just trying to show you how money works, man. I'm just yep. trying to give it to you as best as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, I agree with everything you say. I probably add one more little thing to it, which is just kind of a cautionary comment for the people listening. And that is this. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there giving advice and often it's good advice, but some of the best advice actually comes from the people who have actually walked that path, who have the experience, have done things like created businesses and failed, created businesses and succeeded, invested and failed and invested and succeeded. And I was just actually talking to my daughter about this last night. You know, we were just doing a one hour course on financial education. Then we got talking about politics and she just turned 13 years old yesterday. So it was her birthday. But I said, look, nobody should ever run for office unless they've started and failed at at least two businesses and have experience at investing. I mean, can you imagine if someone has actually gone through the process of starting and building a business, failing and succeeding and invested and understand how money works like you're talking about? It would be a complete game changer. Now we're going into a topic that I'm also right. passionate about, which is politics. We don't want to go down that road. <laughs> yeah, for this podcast. But Marco, you're 100% right. Like I am so tired of seeing politicians making laws, telling business owners how they have to go do something when this person is coming at it from a position that they have zero understanding about, <laughs> zero information about. But look, on paper, 
it kind of probably looks halfway good. Like, oh, yeah, this is a good theoretical concept here. But if you actually, like you said, had started a business, went through those failures and pushbacks and realized how much of that stuff is just not practical, applicable laws that you're implementing, it would change America as we know it if all these politicians had to go through that. Yeah. And then I'm going to add, we got to get off of politics, Marco. I know, I know. <laughs> is I think that political side of it should be a in and out process. I do not believe in this lifelong career. I'm going to be a politician for 40 plus years type of concept. Like in the political side, I believe it should be an act of service. I mean, I even have some opinions. I'm not saying they're my beliefs yet that almost like you should run for Congress once you don't need money from Congress. Like you should not be a leech off of society. Like right. if you go back in the olden days, right? Like when it was first started, there was farmers that basically left their farms, went to DC to became this politician, and then would go home back to their business or farms back in that day. So again, I know we're off topic here, but 100% agree with you. Would to God we could do that. I don't know if that ever takes place, but it was great advice you gave your daughter and hopefully the listeners kind of agree here with this as well. Yeah, there's always mixed opinions and thoughts, but just to kind of close that loop there, there's two quick comments. One, what you're referring to is does exist to some degree and it's called term limits. You know, it's just, do we enforce the term limits? Right. And the second comment is a lot of people don't know this, interestingly enough, like the more you study American history, the more fascinating it becomes. But for the longest time, to actually run in politics, there was never any income. It was done as a voluntary service. You were committing your time. You were not getting paid. It wasn't a job. Mm -mm. Public service is exactly what it was. Pure act of service that you felt obligated to help your country, yep. your city, your community out. And so you would give to go do that. And we have got so far from that concept. It's unique. Totally. So back to money. <laughs> all right. All right. Back to money. Back to money. Okay. So I'm a perpetual student. I love the topic. I try and learn yeah. everything I possibly can about money and wealth and all that stuff. You talk about this concept of money movement. I don't know enough about it because I've never talked to you about it. So talk sure. to me about money movement. What is it? Explain it. I'm genuinely curious to know what it is. Yes. And again, this is just from my own life and then studying wealthy people and also kind of studying middle-class people for all these years that I've been doing it is that what I call the number one rule or the number one law of money is that money constantly must move. And if money does not move, money begins to die. So you really have one option, and that's that money is going to move. Uniquely enough, money moves, whether in the game of money movement, it's going to move with or without you. So uniquely, what I tell people as I teach this concept is that money movement happens, it's happened your whole life, if you have known that you were playing the game or not knowing to play the game, you were still playing the game because the true game is money movement and it's going to happen with or without you. So let me dive a little bit deeper into it so you can sort of see what I mean now. So on the contributor side, the 99% side, we're basically taught to not move money, right? So in a study that you were talking about earlier about 72%, there's another study done by, I think it was Prudential Financial that said, they interviewed people and said, what's your number one fear about money? And the number one fear about money basically came down to that they were, or what's the number one emotion about money? And it was fear. And then they said, okay, if your number one emotion about money is fear, what are you afraid of when it comes to money? And that answer was, I'm afraid of not having enough or I'm afraid of losing it. Okay. So what you find is that on the contributor side, let's just refer to it as the 99% paycheck by paycheck side. What we're basically taught is that we should go to work, uh, work a job, whatever it is, right? And I'm not against working a job. That's not my point here, but you work a job. And then you're going to 
put money into your retirement account and the rest of the money, you're basically going to end up spending it in America, right? And now we can even get into the debate of most people in America right now are not even putting money in, the majority of people are not even putting money in retirement accounts at this point. No. But what happens is that person is not moving money. So when they get their paycheck, it's almost like they hold on to it because they're afraid they hoard they're going to lose it. So what's driving their decisions of money is fear. And the fear is I'm going to lose it. So I'm going to hold on to it so I don't lose it. Because you're at that moment breaking the law of money movement, that money you're trying to hold on to so tight, you will eventually lose it. Okay, And we go into all the different reasons of how it's basically lost, even to the point of inflation that takes place with money throughout time. But when you try to hold on to it and break the law, which is what all 99 percenters basically do is hold on to it. You break the law. Therefore, you don't have money to have money. You have to abide by the law of money movement. So like when I went and interviewed Kevin O'Leary right from Shark Tank, I was talking about this concept here about money movement. And as soon as I mentioned it, like I was kind of intrigued to know if he would know what I was talking about or engage in it. And he did. He said, oh, he said money movement is like the most important thing to do with money. And he gave a whole illustration of how he views money as war. And what that means is he said, I view money that my job is to make money move, which means my job is to take my money, not hold on to it. I want to trade my money for assets constantly. I don't want the cash. I want the assets. And so his whole point was he said, I view money movement as war. So I'm going to make my money go to war and I'm going to play the general. And so of, of this war, if you will, on my side. And so he said, my job is to make sure that my money is out to war. It's as safe as possible as that I want to make it. I understand there's going to be risk involved in it. But if I'm a general, I'm going to make sure that my people, my money is safe as much as possible. And for me to win, my money has to bring me back more money. And so he viewed money movement as war, which is basically the money's got to go out buy an asset, and then that asset continually produces more and more and more money for a person. So as a human, as a person, if you want to create wealth, it is not the concept which you see so many people love, and I'm going to use real estate as an example here, of people saying, I'm going to save up all this money through my job, and eventually I'll be able to save up enough money that I can go buy me a second house, a rental property, or a third house in a rental property. They'll convince themselves that the way to do this is to sit there and save their money for 30 plus years or 20 years or 10 years to be able to buy this second house. And as we know, that, like, that concept just absolutely takes forever in that world of saving up until you go do something. Where the side of money movement, which is the 1% of the creators, their whole perspective is, as soon as I get money, I'm trying to move that money out, not hold on to it, not save it, and trade it for an asset. And that asset will now produce me, in terms of income, my second income. And then as soon as that income hits that next month, I have one job again move it again and go get more assets. And then next month, get more assets and next month, more assets. So like my whole, this is where everything changed for me as well. Because once I realized that my true job with money was to always every month, move it more and every month, move it again and move it again and move it again. My whole perspective changed on money. And so now every month and it's grown throughout the time, right? It started with just single family homes and then it got into storage units and apartment buildings and now we're building a $54 million apartment building. And all these things that I'm doing is that I'm taking that money that I have and I'm just looking for the next thing to go move it into, right? Go back to the contributor side. The only type of money movement that contributors will actually ever get into for the most part, this is broad stroke, but in most part, contributors, for the most part, when they talk about money movement and you ask them about it, they'll say, oh yeah, I am an investor. I move money. And what they'll refer to is I put money, I invest money in my 401k or I invest money in my mutual funds, or I invest money in these bonds, okay? I'm not against those things. Don't miss my point here. 
But for the contributors, that's what they refer to as money movement. And if you just take kind of a step back from that picture right there, what they're really doing in what they call investing or money movement is really they're taking their money and giving it back to the one percenters of the world. Those people are investing it, actually making the money and then giving back some, a little bit of money or very little money to this other side on this side, just enough to basically keep them hooked or addicted to, let me put more in there and I get this little bit of money back, right? And then I don't want to get to the word unless you want to. It's a whole other topic of the word diversification and the, what's the word? I'm going to try to choose my words carefully here. Diversification? Yeah, there you go. Like That is like a complete farce that was sold to the contributors. And, and if you start looking into it, who kind of sold it? The one percenters who managed the money yep. kind of came with this idea. Think about it from a sales perspective for a second, Marco. If I was trying to sell you on the idea of let me manage all your money for you, like let me personally manage your money for you as the money manager, when I went and talked to you as a salesperson, okay, well, I would want to know what is your pain. Okay, this is how sales works, right? It's called there's literally like whole studies done by what's called pain sales, right? And so as a salesperson, you would find this person and figure out what their pain is. Well, the pain for contributors when it comes to money is they're afraid. That's their pain. Okay, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. Therefore, to sell the idea of, well, then give me all your money, the way to sell that to that person is by saying, what we should do is diversify this portfolio for you, and that way you won't feel afraid that you're going to lose your money. And then this person, the contributor says, oh my gosh, it feels that, yes, I feel better if my money is safe and diversified. Here, take all my money. And then boom. And watch what happened right there. I know some of you are on podcasts not watching on the channel, on the YouTube, but all that happened right there was the same thing I've always talked about, money movement. Money moved from this side to this side. In the world of money, money always moves from the contributor side to the creator side. You mentioned earlier, $3.6 trillion printed. There's plenty of money, but the money is always moving from this side to this side, right? We could talk about, and I'm going to get a lot of topics here that you probably want to jump in, but we could talk about all these like stimuluses that they're passing out right now and unemployment they're passing out right now, okay? Not saying it's right or wrong. That's not my point. My point right now is as they pass that money out and they print that money, okay, where is it really going? What goes in the hands of the contributors, but where does it end up at? It ends up back on this side because you're paying your rent, you're paying your mortgage, you're paying your car payment, you're paying your groceries, you're paying your cell phone bill, and all that money goes back to that side, the 1% creator side. All right, sorry, that was a lot at one time, but that's what I mean by money movement inside of money and wealth creation there. That was a great explanation. I know you and I, Andrew, could talk for literally hours and hours about this stuff because you and I are both passionate and we both love to study the concept of money. And yeah, this episode could go for four hours easily. We're not going to do that to the audience here. <laughs> <laughs> they may leave us. They would leave us. But yeah, no, I agree. And you know, the concept of saving that you mentioned is actually one of the mistakes a lot of people make because they save for the sake of saving, not realizing that there is no money movement to tie it back to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If you're saving, your money is sleeping. It's dormant. The only reason you save money is because you want to one day invest it. You want to turn it into a stream of income. You want it to go to work for you and keep that money moving and build it and moving. And you want to save, redeploy, save, deploy, save, deploy, save, deploy. That's how the wealthy get wealthy. Here's an interesting figure. I don't know if you've ever done the calculation, but you know, you put money in a bank and you're getting a savings rate of, let's say, you know, 0.25%, a quarter point, right? Right. In order for you to get a 10% overall return on your money, not even adjusting for inflation, it would take you 40 years, 40 years, a quarter point to make a 10% return on your money. 
Meanwhile, it would have been completely eroded away by the effects of inflation. Yeah. And that's what people don't ever take. And you got to bring in the, the other side of it, which is taxes as well. Right. So even though you made it 10 percent, you now got to add in inflation and you got to add back in taxes. And then let's see where that actually got you over those 40 years there. And that's where if you just if the contributor side would just kind of like take the time to do this math themselves, they'll start to realize, wait a second, this doesn't sound as good or as sexy as kind of what I was sold or told to believe growing up that I should go do. Yeah. And if I may, one more thing I'd like to add to everything you just said is all these people, the 99 percenters or the, uh, what do you call them? Contributors? Contributors. (laughs) The contributors. That's a whole other conversation. But the whole thing about that is when you're putting money away in savings and handing it over to other people to invest for you, you don't realize it, but you're taking on all the risk. The risk is not on them. hundred percent. You're taking on all the risk. So not only are you getting the tiniest slice of the pie in return for your quote unquote investment, but you're taking on all the risk. So you're holding the bag. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I could go into all these stats and all this data. And I don't want to necessarily bore everybody with stats and data, but Marco, you're hitting a nail on the head here when you talk about the contributors just don't understand that at the end of the day, they're the ones taking the risk. That's why and you kind of go back to the diversification side as well. Like, think about it. If diversification was so true and so accurate in what they were saying, and there was this less amount of risk that was involved there, then what happened in 2008? Like, think about it. The 401ks dropped, they said, on average by 52%. Well, isn't that the exact moment? If you're playing this true diversification game that you were kind of led to believe, isn't that the exact moment that when your all your diversification would have kicked into gear and you would have not lost 52% of your entire retirement account in the 401ks because you were all just diversified in your portfolio? But what we kind of uncovered in that time frame is all the risk was really still on you. And when you lost that 52%, whatever the amount may be back in 08, let me ask you a question. Did you call your broker or whoever, you know, your financial <laughs> say, advisor back up and say, hey, can you put that money back in the account really quick for me? The answer is no, you didn't even consider it because you actually realized you were the one taking the risk. And Mark, one more point here. Think about this. Most of the time when you do call that person up, that money manager that's doing this, right? And they say, hey, I've lost this money. The market's crashed and I've lost 52% of my income. What should I do? Or, you know, you're asking, what should you do? Or I want to get my money out. What is the like go-to answer of that person is always, no, 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 you can't pull out now. If actually what you need to do is put more money in right now. And it's like, wait a second. If I was investing with someone that was managing my entire life savings for my family's retirement and they lost me all this money and I called them and their answer was, give me more of your money. Like, it's like such a, like, <laughs> I don't even understand the concept of why someone would do that, but it works time after time again. It's what happens to the contributor 99%. And understand contributor is not a bad word. I'm not saying it has a negative connotation. I'm just saying, When it comes to the game of money, there are those that contribute to money and there are those that create money and they're not the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, So you've opened up Pandora's box here (laughs) probably three times. So yeah, I think we just do need to touch on diversification just for a moment and then we can kind of start to wind it all up with the concept of money movement. Because really, at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest money secrets, if you will, of wealthy people is about what we're talking about here, especially with money movement. So with diversification, I don't want people to get confused because I do talk about diversification, but when I talk about diversification, I'm referring to geographic diversification within the asset class. So you're building a portfolio in Kansas City and in Jacksonville, Florida and Houston, Texas and wherever else. Sure. You're still within the asset class. It's income producing real estate. 
emphasis on the word income producing, but you've got that geographic diversification for the reasons that you do it. But, you know, Mark Cuban has said that diversification is for idiots. And even uh, Andrew Carnegie, you know, said, take all your eggs, put it in one basket and just watch over that one basket, you know? Right. I agree with all that. I think ultimately you get to a point where you've mastered whatever you're investing in or whatever you're building, whether it's a business or an investment. I think it's at that point that you could probably start to diversify and build another empire or income stream in a different asset class once you've got everything under control and it's on autopilot. Do you agree with that philosophy or no? Yeah, and that's a great point to bring up because I don't want to think people that I'm against diversification. I'm not against diversification. I'm against how we were originally taught diversification is what I'm against when it comes to money, right? Here's a great speech that Warren Buffett gave that goes along with this right here. And he said that diversification, the way that it was taught, okay, diversification has never created wealth. If you take a step back as a contributor, you got to stop and think it, ask yourself, what do you mean? Here's one of the wealthiest people on the face of the planet telling us that diversification has never created wealth. He went on to say right after he said diversification was created by the wealthy to sustain their wealth. Okay. <laughs> so diversification has never, like, if you just say, I'm going to have this massive diversified portfolio, just understand that that was sold to you by a money manager to try to overcome your fear so that you would give them their money and it made you feel good, but it's never created wealth. That's why, Marco, how many people are inside the 401ks right now that they said AAA came out this stat that said the average American right now, AAA, right? Not a financial company, people that work with retired people constantly said that the average American needs between $1 million and $1.5 million to retire in America, according to AAA, and depending on what state you live in, a million to $1.5 million. Now, if you then ask the average person that's headed to retirement, how is that working out for you with that philosophy of what you're going down, this diversification, old school mentality, they would start to realize, wait a second, I'm not even close to a million or $1.2 million of income inside of my 401k. And I've been doing this for 22 years now, right? This is the concept we're talking about. Diversification is what you're referring to. And when you find wealthy people like Andrew Carnegie, I love history. My dad was a history major. That's why I have all these historical concepts. I love Andrew Carnegie, which at one point was, they said, two to three times more wealthier than Jeff Bezos was right now. And you talk about how Andrew Carnegie said, put all your eggs in that one basket and then oversee that one basket. And so what you'll find in the wealthy 1% is they find what they're very good at and they hyper-focus on what they're really, really good at. And then as that grows to where they want it to get, at that level is when they start going into what you refer to as another stream or concept of investment. But they don't just go out there and say, okay, I'm going to go buy this amount of this and this amount of this and this amount of this and this amount of this. And they spread themselves so thin that they don't know they can't master all those classes, especially at one time. Right. When you find wealthy people, they find like, say that, and I chose this for a while, single family homes. And I said, I'm going to make my wealth in single family uh, real estate. That has been proven for generations, right? And like what you said, if you want to kind of diversify then inside of single family homes, you would then, which I agree with, go different geographical locations in case something happens in that one market that maybe you, you couldn't even put on paper that it could happen, but it did. So that then your portfolio is diversified from that one tragedy that whatever took place in that one market there. But you're better off kind of staying in that realm or that lane there. And then when you get to a certain point, then diversify into something else and not diversify way back at the beginning. When you find wealthy people, you'll find it's the same thing. They find what they're good at. They do a bunch of that. And then they diversify from there at the top of that because that's what sustains the wealth and doesn't create the wealth. Got it. 
Does that help you out? Am I saying that the right way for you as far as how I view diversification? Yeah, no, that's perfect. I totally agree. So let's kind of tie this all together. Staying on the topic of money movement. Yeah. What advice can we give or what advice can you share with people listening to this about how to be properly involved in money movement? How does someone know that they are putting their money to work in the right way and that they are moving their money so they can actually create wealth? Right. Great question. So when you study business owners, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, so forth, what you really find out, here's what I found out, is that great wealthy individuals, investors, business owners, et cetera. When it comes down to money, it comes down to, I kind of look at it as a circle, if you will. I'm going to try to visualize this out for the ones that are listening right now. It's kind of like a circle. Okay. And the middle of this circle is where I kind of call this wealthy business structure for initials, WBS, wealthy business structure. So you have an outer circle and then this inner circle, which is WBS or whatever you want to call it. It's just the right structure of a business. Okay. I say wealthy because wealthy people do this. When I interview Grant Cardone, O'Leary, all of them, Gary Vaynerchuk, the same thing. From there, you basically have three kind of components when it comes to money that you have to make sure you are very good or accurate at. One is you have to know how to control money. Number two, you have to know how to keep money. And number three, wealthy people know how to protect money. So in a broad sense now, around this kind of inner circle here, you have a layer that goes around it in three components, controlling money, keeping money, and protecting money. If you asked a wealthy person how they protect their money, well, they would know how they do that. They could explain to you literally how their structure is. If you asked a wealthy person how they control it, and control is more about understanding how the tax side of business works and what type of tax structure you should be inside of, right? Whether it should be incorporated in more of a C-corp or or LLCs or GLPs and so forth affects your tax and how much money you're going to control at the end of the year. And then keeping it is more about the custodian side. I want to know how I can grow my wealth and keep my money as it grows, which this is where like you would hear stories of on news and it happens all the time, but we're going to hear certain pieces of it. Here's this wealthy person or company that's made all this money. Let's make them over here. They made $9 million, but they paid $0 in taxes. And what that means is that person has learned how to keep their money. So they made 9 million and kept 9 million. Where contributors struggle at is they may make, let's use easier numbers now, they may make $400,000 that year in their business. But at the end of the year, they want to get their taxes to zero so bad that they end up spending all their money because they don't know how to keep it. Therefore, at the end of the year, they actually made $0. And what's crazy is they kind of get excited about it. Like, oh my God, I did it again. I pay nothing in taxes again. And that part is true, except for if you look at it from the standpoint of, but how much money do you have right now? The answer is still zero. You made 400, but you spent 400. Therefore, how much did you keep? Zero. Wealthy people know how to, in that example, make 400 and keep 400 or make 400 and keep 300 of it. Wealthy people have mastered the art of knowing how to control money, keeping money and protecting money. So, and the magic happens on that center core there, WBS, wealthy business structure is when all three of those kind of components are all utilized together at the same time. A lot of times in business, when I got started, Marco, I might have had a CPA and I might have had some random attorney or maybe I was using them online to set up my entities or whatever it was. But my CPA and my attorneys were never on the same page. It's like I had a conversation with my attorney and then I went ahead and had a conversation with my CPA and then I had to go have a conversation with my financial advisor. And none of them were actually working kind of together, if you will. When you find high levels of wealthy families, those three components are always congruent, working together on the same goal objective for that person to the level of 
There's even a thing, if you dive deeper into wealthy, wealthy families, there's a thing called a family office, Mm -hmm. which is where like they literally are, for lack of better words, sitting in office together. And it's this wealthy families, their own attorney, their own CPA, their own financial advisors in their own rooms. And that's where they keep all their money at is in this one. They literally will bring them all those components in like one office that they own and control. (laughs) And that group manages their money. Yep. Where we struggle as a business owner, Marco, is we don't have that same type of thing there for us. And so we have this random piece over here, this random piece over here, right. online attorney, and it messes up kind of, it prevents us from actually growing the way that we want to grow. So with money is, that's what I really try to focus on is helping the business owner understand, here's how the taxes should work for you. I don't care who you use, but this is how they should work. Here's how you should keep your money with the custodians. And then here's how you protect your money. I'm trying to show the overall concept of how it works. And then- give you a game plan and you can use whoever you want to, but this is how it should work. I know that you've got a hand in this area and I'm sure a lot of people are nodding their head right now saying, oh yeah, I understand it. I get it. Now, how do I take the next step to get to that level from where they're at right now, where they may have separate pieces that are not actually talking to each other? What's the next step in someone's journey there? I'll give you two different answers here, right? So one answer is that person has to go figure out how all that piece of the puzzle work, which is kind of what I did which is a very up and down frustrating world, but it can be done. I mean, you can go figure it all out. It's going to take you quite a long time and dedication and you got to be passionate about it because there's no like simple, here's a book, go do this, a concept inside of it. And to answer the question on the other side, one of the things that we try to do is we have what we created just called a, a blueprint. It's basically a game plan that the attorneys, not me, but the attorneys, the CPAs, the custodians kind of all created. And so we give different people a blueprint you got to answer a couple of questions. It's probably maybe a dozen or so questions. They're, they're generic, not personalized, like, you know, your social security or anything. Just generic of where your business is. And then the firm of CPAs, attorneys, and custodians will answer and say, hey, here's these things you should look at in where you're at right now in your specific case, because every case is different. Here's where you should go look at in these categories right here. And then once you have that game plan, they'll give you the answers for free. It doesn't cost you anything. Then you can go do that with whoever you want to. Or if you like to work with kind of their attorneys or their CPAs, they'll set it up for you. But again, it's free and you can go work with whoever you want to. If you have your own attorney or so forth you like, this will just give that business owner an actual legitimate blueprint to start off with from attorneys and CPAs and custodians to help them out. Okay, Andrew, we've been going for 50 minutes here. Maybe that's the perfect ending point. So tell us maybe where we can do that test. And tell our listeners how they can find out more about you or get more information. Yeah, for sure. If you want that little a blueprint there, which is extremely viable for you as a business owner, just go to our website, moneyis.com forward slash blueprint. Okay, so just moneyis.com forward slash blueprint. And it'll go through all those little categories. There's four or five questions of each of those three components. You answer them and they'll give you the blueprint of what you should go look at doing in your own business. And then if you want to follow me, just go to my website, moneyis.com. We have all kinds of educational stuff there. 99% of it is free that we just try to give away. Like a book maybe costs you some money. We do have free books, but if you actually want my book, it may cost you $10 or something. But pretty much everything on the site is free. It's there to help you. So they can just go to moneyis.com. The blueprint is moneyis.com forward slash blueprint. Awesome. Andrew, this has been a great pleasure. I know you and I could probably go on for hours here, and I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. It kind of pains me to end it here, but... We don't want to go too much longer. We can't get go for long because they'll all leave us, Marco. Yeah, well, we'll just get you back on the show later. How's that? I love it, Marco, man. Thank you so much for having me on this show too. Yes, sir. Well, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. And we'll put everything in the show notes for everybody listening. So thank you. So one of the takeaways from this episode, as you can tell, is to continually educate yourself. 
and work with the right people, have the right team surrounding you because these things are not unreachable. It's just a matter of educating yourself, taking action, making it happen, working with the right team of people. So I hope this was helpful. Again, we could go on for hours talking about this, and I believe that I'm going to have another follow-up conversation with Andrew about these topics, and we'll probably dive a little deeper into it and maybe roll some more real estate into the conversation about money and wealth. So that's it for today. Download your free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It's available as a free download on our two websites at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com or NoradaRealEstate.com. Again, spread the word. We love sharing this information with like-minded people. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. We will see you on our next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.